Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. On Tuesday, Dress listeners, we spoke to George Collegian, owner of Tom Sons International Pleading, a family-owned and operated business in New York City's famed garment district. And his business has a history spanning multiple continents and five generations. And today we meet Adam Brand, the fourth generation fabric flower maker helming another historic New York City garment district staple, M&S Schmalberg, founded in 1916. And while you might not necessarily have heard of M&S Schmalberg before today, chances are you have seen their work. Yes, you definitely have seen their work, and that is because (laughs) their flowers adorn the work of some of the biggest designers in the world and subsequently worn by countless celebrities from Sarah Jessica Parker to Beyonce, Jenna Ortega, Rita Ora, and Olivia Rodrigo. And in addition, they have also made countless appearances on your favorite film and TV shows like The Gilded Age, uh, Sex and the City, and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So we recently had the pleasure of meeting Adam and getting a behind-the-scenes tour of M&S Schmalberg on our recent Dressed Fashion History Tour of New York City in December of 2023. So we're super pleased to have him join us today to hear all about this incredibly special place, which is at the heart of the New York City Garment District, Um, and, and also especially because it's one of the only businesses left of its kind in the U.S. So Adam, a very warm welcome to Dressed. Adam, welcome to Dressed. I am so excited to talk to you today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. You are a fourth generation flower maker carrying on a family business that opened its doors in 1916, which is amazing, over 100 years ago. Tell us about the company's founders, Morris and Sam Schmalberg, and what inspired them to create a flower making business in the first place. Because I don't think this is something that would immediately come to people's minds today. (laughs) That's true. Uh, So it's great to be on the show. I'm very excited to talk to you. The company, as you said, was started back in 1916. And I've gotten many variations of the question over the years. Why flowers? What inspired them to start it? You know, if you were to fast forward 100 years from now, the the record keeping and the stuff would be incredible. 100 years ago, it wasn't the same, you know, so there's no archives of pictures like you wish there was. And there's not a lot of archives of information. So I only have the word of mouth. And today, that's that's my dad. And I, I was actually asking him about that before this. And I've, I've always had, like I said, I've been asked that question a bunch of times, and I've given kind of a general answer. And he kind of proved that correct, that there's no reason. There's no particular reason of flowers. They were just trying to feed their family. They were immigrants. They were from Poland. Uh, they wanted to start a business. Maybe they didn't have enough money to start a dress factory, so they went smaller. And... While this is a unique craft now, there was at one time, and I read this in a book, there was at one time 150 feather and flower manufacturers in New York City. So starting another flower company was not this radical idea. It was a 
perfectly rational thing to do. And maybe it was a little more entry level, right? Something you didn't have to have, you know, cutting and tailoring skills and dressmaking skills. You needed these molds, which we'll talk about in a minute. And um, I mean, I'm sure it's a lot more complex than we say, but I'm just thinking maybe it was something that they could get into. No, that is a great point because our business is a a combination of vintage tools that are kind of irreplaceable and skills and crafts. And yes, there's a lot of skill and artistry and talent that goes into it. But if we're being fair, it's not rocket science. A new employee can come and learn different things. And little by little, they get better at stuff. I mean, I've I've been working at Schmalberg like 13, 14 years. And there's some things that I am proficient at, you know, like I can do as well as anyone. There's some things that I'm just not the best at. Uh, But it's definitely a business that you could learn without go. I didn't go to school for fashion. And something I think that's also really interesting about them opening the business at that time was that was like right when the garment district was on the eve of becoming the garment district. It's it wasn't necessarily what we think of today uh, in terms of it was just blossoming. I think those the two main buildings were being built, I think, in the early 1920s. And then the garment district would really like blossom up around that that center as this fashion making hub of the of New York and also the United States. This is why I like talking to historians, because I don't know a lot of this <laughs> stuff. You know, I was I'm so lucky to have this wonderful business in my family, and I, I feel like I've really taken to it and I've grown to love it. But there's so much about the history of flower making and the garment district in general that I just don't know. And I've learned I've learned over the years. Yeah. And of course, your company is a staple of the garment district, one of the few remaining original businesses of the original garment district, which is just incredible. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, the business was carried on. So after Morris and Sam, it was carried on by their nephew, Harold, and then his children, Deborah and Warren. Warren is your father. Can you tell us a little bit about the trajectory of the business throughout the 20th century and then into the 20th century when, of course, you just mentioned you joined it and it's now helmed by you? Uh, yeah, I could spend an hour and a half doing that. Uh, I'll try and keep it short. Uh, the company was started in 1916. We, we've kind of touched on that a little bit. Uh, my grandfather, Harold, was a Holocaust survivor. He was he was in Poland when the war broke out. He lost his mother, his father, two brothers, a sister. I've said that line I just said way too many times, and it's easy to you know breeze over that they were real people that uh, conceivably I could have right. you know could have met my my uncles, aunts, and stuff. It's terrible, and he went through. I've heard countless stories, uh, and one thing that always stands out in all of the stories is that he's a survivor. And I know we have that's a common term we use Holocaust survivor as a term, but like he, just this man, there's more. There, there's countless stories in his life where he was just the guy who just he he survived and he found a way to to get through it. And he was just a kid. He somehow got in touch with the Schmalbergs here in New York. Uh, my name is Adam Brand. Uh, the Schmalberg was his mother's maiden name, so I'm I'm grass fed, purebred Schmalberg with with an easier name. <laughs> he came over on a boat. I'm assuming you know different different time altogether. Uh, so he came over here. He lived in one of their attics. I, I don't remember which one. And he just sort of took to the business. And as they got older, their kids didn't want the kids weren't interested in it. Because, you know, as 
as unique and special as it is now, it was, a, I don't want to say a diamond dozen, but it was a common thing. I don't know that there was anyone who was like dying to get into the the flower, the garment district back then. The kids probably were doing their own thing. My grandpa bought the business. He became the second generation owner. And again, survival. I've just heard countless stories over just listening to my dad. Uh, he would, my grandpa would buy and sell Christmas wreaths, uh, Arnold Palmer shirts. I don't know how successful any of these ventures were. But they were just things to keep the place going. He was incredibly likable. He was just a wonderful, wonderful man. I, I'm very lucky that I got to know him. He uh, would go to to clients, you know, to dressmakers, and try and sell flowers. And sometimes they're in style, sometimes they're not. But they liked him, and they'd say, "Listen, I don't have anything for you right now, but here, take some of this fabric. Give me." I was going to say 20 bucks, but back then that's a lot. Give me five bucks, yeah. <laughs> take all this fabric. And then my grandpa took it back and stole the fabric for 20 bucks and went back to the guy with 20 and, you know, just kept it going. And so much so that when I was a kid and I visited my family at work, before you would get, we, we had a street level store. And before you would get to the flower factory, there was a little fabric store. And being a kid, I never really, I, I just, in my in my brain, we had a fabric store. It never occurred to me that the real gem was the flower factory in the back uh, until I got older. As you already mentioned, he he had he got married to my nana Renee. They had a couple of kids. My my dad Warren, my aunt Deborah. My dad's story is that he graduated on like a Tuesday and went to work on a Wednesday, and he was just all in from day one. And he grew up in this business. And we could talk more about my dad and the passion he has. Like he calls every day and he wants to know what's going on. Who's cutting what? Who? What orders are we working on? What clients are coming? He was, he's half and half New York, Florida. And he was in, in town last week and he came in just for a day. And I don't know that he'd been in six months prior to that. But when he's there, he's he is the boss. He's in charge. And it's just, I... I'm very lucky that I get to work with my dad. It's a pretty cool thing. And just the passion that he exudes. And he hasn't been there in six months, but he can immediately pick up what's going on. And that's there's something special about that. And that's part of the secret sauce as to why we're still here. I don't always talk about this when I'm interviewed or when I'm talking about the business because it's just not it's not happy. But you, you were kind of asking the story, and uh, this is part of the story. Uh, I was born in 83. I think this happened in 81. We were very busy, and they were just hiring people from agencies or this or that and they just had some different people that we didn't really know well and my dad went out to some appointment or something and he gets a call from the office i don't even know how they got him because there's no cell phones back then but there was some dispute in the back two employees probably arguing over something stupid and my grandpa and i know my grandpa he wasn't the he was not the boss that was going in telling him to shut the you know he he was probably very diplomatic about it telling him like yo guys stop it and one of them pulls out a gun and shoots him and he survived. He survived that back to his story of survival. I can tell by your reaction. I don't think I told you this when we spoke previously. No, I had no idea. I mean, wow. Yeah, he survived. He survived that. And my dad was working full time. He calls my aunt, who was, I think she was a teacher uh, somewhere south. And he's like, hey, I need you to come back. And she came back. She started working. And that's how she really got into the business because she was she was doing her own thing. I'll just put a little bow on that. My grandpa survived. He was he was all right. He, he got he played golf. He got to meet grandkids, you know, me, my my brother Ian, my sister Carly. There was plenty of beautiful moments. We'll keep we'll keep it light. <laughs> Back to Flowerland. My aunt comes in and 
Now we're in like the 80s, 90s. And I remember hear, starting to hear stories, basically the outsourcing, where a big designer, a name that you, we've all known, comes up, has us make samples, has us create something new. And then six months go by, a year go by, and you kind of forget about it. You don't hear from them. And you're walking Macy's, Bloomingdale's, or whatever whatever store. And my dad would just tell me, like, you see racks of just knockoffs, you know, something that we helped design and create, sent offshore to be made for pennies on the dollar. Yeah, because your business and your father would have seen that huge shift that happened, right, in like the late 80s and early 90s with NAFTA, the trade agreement and all that stuff when it started really shifting. So, yeah, so I don't know much about the the higher level politics and the reasoning behind it. I just know the from my perspective as a kid, because remember, he saw it. I only heard about it, but I heard about it a lot to the point where they became jaded. Anytime any name you've ever heard of comes up and the sampling, it, the general talk about like, oh, they're going to knock us off. And that's a lot of times they do. Sometimes they don't. Uh, my dad would charge people like that more for samples, you know. Right. The, the last real busy time was when Sex and the City first came out. Uh, Carrie Bradshaw was wearing these big flowers uh, and he created this whole trend. And I, I remember working between college semesters. My sister and I worked and it was like three month backlog, rolls of fabric everywhere, just waiting to be cut and put through that whole process. You know, you have that, you have that run. And again, part of our survival is that when you have that run, my dad, my family, they they worked it. Like my dad would work Saturdays. He would get up early. He would leave late. That passion is so much of why we're, we're the ones that are still here. But there there were several years because after that of, of pretty slow business. I graduated Stony Brook, I don't know, 14 years ago. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with right. life. And I called my dad and asked if I could come come work. At the time, the business wasn't exactly making money. So he wasn't looking to take on, you know, the exorbitant salary I would command, of course. <laughs> I say that tongue in cheek. This whole thing, me, me being here with you started with, you don't have to pay me, just pay my train ticket. And, you know, my dad is <laughs> a mensch among many <laughs> other things. I feel like that's a good word to describe. So he kept track of like all the, even though I wasn't paid, he was keeping track of all the hours and he helped me get an apartment. And it's It was all wonderful, but it all started with just me coming in and there's a passion, there's a meticulousness to the way my dad runs things. I got to work with my aunt too, which was really great before she sadly passed away. I've gotten to work a couple of days with my grandpa. My mom was involved in the business. She was doing sales. She That's how my parents met, is that she was a designer and came up for something. And my dad was like, oh, who's that? And they dated and they got married. So we really are. Everyone in my family has been at some point involved in the business. But it was slow. It was really slow for a bunch of years. When the business is working well, we make flowers for production orders, for whatever it may be. It could be fashion designers, costume designers, hat makers, somebody's wedding, anything. When we're not busy, we make flowers for the house that hopefully people from these shows might, you know, we had Bridgerton up uh, a couple of years ago and they needed flowers and they didn't need anything particular. They just needed a lot. And they went through our inventory and inventory and bought like 500 plus flowers and that's great but you can't count on that so we can only make flowers for the house for so long and there were times where we would close the, the studio early we would have to cut hours just to survive my, my dad i mean i don't talk about this a lot but my dad's been retired about five years and i'm pretty sure the last year to year and a half of him working and maybe more he drew possibly no salary at all it's always worked out as the right decision in that we're still here, but uh, 
It hasn't been easy. And uh, then about three years ago, you might have heard about this. I started getting word of this mystery illness that was uh, circulating. It was flu-like and very contagious. And I remember we were very slow. And I went to the staff on a Thursday and I said, well, let's take off tomorrow. We'll come back on, on Monday and we'll figure this all out. And that was like March 11th or March 12th. And we and we were closed for like three months. We reopened. It was very slow for a while. It slowly built back up. And I kind of feel like the past couple of years that things have returned to, I say, normal. It's a different business than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. In the old days, it was all garment district production, make the order, carry it over on a hand truck. Maybe you ship some stuff around the country, but most of it was that. And today we get some of that, but we also get big orders from, from Bridgerton. We, we, our biggest customer two years ago was the San Francisco Opera, making hundreds of flowers for them in very particular combinations where like they probably sent a hundred fabrics and like these two fabrics, mix them together to make 10 of that flower. These two, 10 of that flower. It's a very meticulous, very high attention to detail, but great order. Uh, we, we sell on Etsy. We sell on Amazon. Again, anyone who's listening to this, this podcast who is intrigued and wants to buy flowers can go to our website, customfabricflowers.com. You, you click shop and there's hundreds of flowers available that you can buy. And that was like a novelty 10 years ago. And it's maybe 15% of our business now. And that's amazing. We we get people reaching out to send us heirloom garments. People have sent us their grandmother's wedding dress to turn into flowers or their kids' pajamas or a shirt from somebody who passed away or or anything you could think of. We We work with designers big and small and we work with individuals. We get people who just find us on Google and come up to the studio. And so the whole place, the whole vibe has kind of changed. Yeah, what I think is really interesting, too, because your business has been around for over, you know, 100 and almost 110 years is seeing how the fashion landscape specifically in America has changed, right? So you go from like this thriving garment district that's built around the teens and 20s, reaches its fever pitch height in the 50s and 60s, and then dramatically declines after the introduction of uh, or the lessening of trade laws that make it possible to send production overseas. And now we're left with this mess today with the fast fashion industry. And you can tell me if you agree with me, but I think we're seeing a lot of pushback now where people don't want the fast fashion and they're looking for the heart that is embedded in the clothes we wear and the craftsmanship. And there is, a, I'm hoping to see this grow and grow and grow. And we talk about it all the time on the podcast is like appreciating that craftsmanship, that heart, that history, and that family element. And you have all of those things in your business. Uh, and so I would hope that that is also one of the reasons people are coming to you because they can actually appreciate this is why this flower costs more money and I'm going to pay it because it's something that I can keep forever versus a $2 flower off Amazon or whatnot. I think that there's a, a balance between everybody is passionate about it. Everyone talks about it. And I'm very biased with this uh, for obvious reasons, because I'm in, I'm in a business where we manufacture here. But I wonder how much of it is talk versus how much of it is action. And the example that I've I've used this before is if you, you need a pair of jeans and you go to the store and they have 
one pair that's made by this artisan in Kentucky, and he he grows all the materials himself, and he cuts each stitching and this and that, and he meticulously makes each one, and he kisses them when he's done, and it's wonderful, and they're $100. And then there's this other pair of jeans that, uh, you know, don't ask any questions, but here they are. They're 10 bucks. We're all about, you know, American-made and ethically made. Who's behind this? But where where do we vote with our wallets? And I, I'm sure, you know, I'm guilty of that in many cases. My my family's guilty of that in many cases. We're all guilty of that. It's not just fashion. We turned into this whole Amazon world where you need anything. And I just want it fast. I don't care where it comes from. I don't care who made it. And uh, I don't like that. I like to know. Just again, I'm biased. I know that, but I like to know where things come from. I like to know who made it. I think our business has an incredible legacy with that in terms of a lot of our staff members been making flowers a very long time, some of them longer than I've been alive. I don't think, you know, it's, I don't even think it's that expensive. Like we, we sell flowers on, on Etsy for 20, 25 bucks. And it, it's funny, I'll get a lot of people that are very happy with it and they beautiful flower, love, love the story. And then every once in a while, you'll get like a negative review about someone who I think just doesn't know any better that says like, oh my God, this should, you should get a hundred flowers for twenty dollars. And where are they coming from? Like, how how are you doing that? If if you're if you're getting something like that, there's something very wrong. Like if you're if you're going to a dollar store and you're buying a fully made, pretty much anything for a dollar, somewhere somebody along the line is getting screwed. Well, yeah, and the crazy thing is, so much of that is also handmade, right? But it's the conditions it's made in, and the ethics involved in the making of that, right? So, you know, we just, as a society, need to really, really, you know, this is very redundant on this podcast. Our listeners hear this all the time, but we really need to yeah. start thinking more consciously about everything we consume, um, not just clothing. You spoke a little bit about it uh, just then when you said that some of your employees have been there for longer than you've been alive, which is incredible. We met some of them on our recent fashion history tour of New York City because you invited us into the workshop. We got to go behind the scenes and actually see this process and what goes into making this. You're also incredibly generous with your Instagram followers. Custom Fabric Flowers is your handle because you share almost daily this process, which is incredible as well. So can you tell us a little bit more about what goes into making a flower in your workshop, especially because there's so much history embedded in that practice? You still use some of the techniques and tools employed by your great great uncles, which is incredible. So can you tell us a little bit about the step by step process? Our business is a combination of a lot of history and vintage processes mixed with some modern some modern advances, although even our new methods are still pretty old, any fabric pretty much can become a fabric flower. Traditionally, it was always silk, polyester. Uh, we could do cotton, leather, suede, velvet. We've had people send us exotic like python skins, which are a little creepy. Um, we've made flowers out of military uniforms for a certain... Uh, this company, Eagles and Angels, they do a lot of different stuff for good to, to help veterans. But one of the things they do is they take old uniforms and turn them into things, whether it's flowers or bow ties or, or lots of different stuff. Cool company. Uh, we've made flowers out of heirloom garments. I mentioned that before. Dresses, shirts, pretty much anything you can think of. The first thing that we do when we get a fabric is we starch it. So if it's a roll of 50 yards and we're using all of it, we'll cut it into panels. They're about 
about 45, 50 inches square. Uh, if we're using a dress, we obviously can't get a piece that big. So we'll get the biggest pieces we can just for efficiency's sake. And we starch the fabric. We have different starches that we use. You take the material, you submerge it in this liquid. It's similar to like uh, like a laundromat, but when they starch shirts. I've never done that, but I've heard people say that. And you're just trying to give the material a little extra body so that it'll take whatever texture and shaping you're, you're trying to give it. it. It helps with fraying. Each material is unique. So there's a lot of nuance in, in that process alone. Once the fabric dries, we make layers out of it. And the best way I could explain that is if you're uh, trying to cut 10 flowers and each flower has 50, no, each flower has five petal layers in it, 10 times five is 50, you need 50 petals. If you're cutting it, the fabric one by one, you would have to do 50 cuts. It would be a lot of work for just 10 flowers. Uh, what we do is we layer it by, basically you're folding it in most cases. You might layer it by four, by eight, by 16, depending on how, how thick the fabric is. You can obviously cut through a lot more silk organza versus uh, a thick leather. So now you have a layer of fabric. So you've you've starched your satin. It's layered by 10, let's say. It's a nice rectangle so that whoever does the cutting, which sometimes can be me, it could be Alex who's been with us 35 years. Uh, it could be Michael. It could be Daniel. It could be Lincoln, whatever. So whoever is doing the cutting knows every cut here gives me 10 petals. And if we're doing if we're doing that order before of ten flowers and you're getting five each, you need fifty, then you only need five cuts for for right. that small order. But if you're getting into hundreds or thousands, for example, I when we had the San Francisco Opera order, we also got another order for fourteen thousand petals, seven thousand in one size, seven thousand in another size. And we didn't have all the staff that we have today. And I ended up cutting it and the fabric is layered by 10. So you do 14,000 divided by 10. That's 1,400 cuts that you have to do. Oh my gosh. Uh, it's not going to take a month, but it's 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 a lot of work. In the old days, we, we used to do the cutting. All the dyes had like a long stem and you would take this mallet, this rubber hammer and swing it really hard and cut through the flower petals. I mentioned modernization before. Our version of modernization in that sense is that now we have a die cutting clicking machine, which if, if you search the internet and just type that in, I think you'll find pictures of what it is. It comes down with a few thousand pounds of pressure. So it's a lot stronger than anybody swinging a hammer. We take those same dies and we take a like a saw and we cut the stem off, which is easier said than done. And you're still cutting one cut at a time but you don't have to swing the hammer. So it's a faster, more efficient, and really safer way too. It's it's designed with safety in mind and that you have to use both hands in order to complete the cutting cycle. So there's nobody swinging hammers. So as long as you're not like silly about it, you, you're not going to hurt yourself. Uh, so now you cut your petals, you have a bunch of flat petals, cookie cut in whatever shape you pick. I, I think the cool part happens next, which is when we take those flat petals, we find a mold. Uh, we have hundreds of different molds ranging from smooth camellia shapes, deeper rosebuds, jagged carnations, gardenias, anything you could really imagine. That was the, one of the coolest parts of being in there is seeing the molds. And then even when you post them on social media, it always just sends my heart a flutter. I don't know what it is about them, but they're so cool. And you have so many of them. And a lot of them are really old, right? Like you You've been using these same molds for... They're all old. 
yes. So they they are all old. They are hard to find. You know, back when the garment district was thriving and there were lots of flower factories, I imagine that there was places that made things like this and you could possibly custom order them. Right. I don't know of anyone who just makes them anymore. It's very hard to find. I've researched 3D printing. Uh, It seems like it could be a viable option, but the cost is very, very high. I don't know how long a 3D printed mold would last. Some of what we have there, they're over 100 years old. They've been around a really long time and they're heavy. Anytime I give somebody a factory tour, I, I, if it's a small group, I, I like to hand them one of the molds just so they can get a sense of it. Using heat, pressure, and that starch I mentioned before, we use these molds to press the petals. Uh, the, the old way was a, a wheel press where basically you, put, you take a few flat petals, you put them in the mold, which is already hot close the mold, slide it under this wheel, you turn it and it creates pressure and presses the pedals. And you could do two, three, four at a time. So if you imagine back to that 14,000 pedal order, which was only like a year, a few years ago, it's a lot of pressing cycles, you know, 4,000 times you have to take the three or four flat pedals in, take them out. So it's a lot of work, but it is one of, if not the coolest part of what we do. I was going to say, that has to be very satisfying, right? Like you just have this flat piece of fabric uh, that has no shape, no definition. You put it into this mold, you press it down, and then it comes out. It brings it to life. It gives it, gives it life. Yeah. And what's just so cool about that is that you you could take the same cut shape and you can mold it in, in a different mold. So it could be smooth like a camellia. It could be very detailed like... Like I mentioned, carnation before, we have dahlia molds. You can mix and match things. And then as you get to the next steps, flowers can be made with multiple dyes molds together. So it's when you walk into our spaces, there's so many flowers all around you. And that's really just a taste of what's possible because you could make something new. When, one of my favorite things is when we work with designers and they, they kind of come and play and they'll take this aspect from this flower, this aspect from that flower and create something that even though the tools have been around forever, something that's never been done before. So I mentioned the wheel press is the old way. The new way is probably still 30 plus years old. We have these uh, hydraulic electrical presses that if you see them, they they look like MacGyver. They almost look like Dr. Octopus from Spider-Man. And it's the same idea. You take the same molds. We, we put this little screw on top, which allows the it basically retrofits them to work in this machine instead of a gas stove heating the whole press there's an electric hot plate on the top and the bottom instead of turning a wheel for pressure there's a compressor in another room so it's more consistent you can control the exact speed and pressure that it comes down you can control the the temperature more precisely you can control the timing and and i like that it's still maintaining the the, the traditional craft of actually using molds and then the final step is putting the flowers together. Once you have your petals cut and pressed, you can make lots of different things with them. You can make buds. Buds are very tricky. They're very, you have to be meticulous. You have to place each petal correctly. You don't want to see, there's glue involved. You, you have to place the glue so that the petals stay, but you don't want to see the glue. You, you can add making buds as one of the things that I don't do well. Something, <laughs> something else that we do is we make, it's called a petal tie where you could take a few different petal layers. They could be the same shape, different shape, same fabric, different fabric. And 
I don't know how to describe it without doing it, but you're basically folding, twisting the petals to create like a little poof. If you can imagine the kind of the center of a carnation, how there's a wildness to it. Petal ties I can make. I don't know that I do them well, but I could I could do that. And that could be the center of a flower. That could be something that surrounds a flower. In addition, we have a lot of different stamens that we use. Some are some are vintage, some are not as vintage. And you can kind of just mix and match these things to create new pieces. There's there's a project we did with Vera Wang where where the designer was asking me about parrot tulips. I, you know, I went on Google, I found pictures, and in the end, I convinced her to come up to our spot. And I use her example all the time as what somebody who's really talented can do with our stuff. She took the center of one flower, then she took uh, the next layer from a different flower, and then she took some of those like flower ties that I mentioned and kind of surrounded the whole thing with those. And then she took like teardrops from like a larger hibiscus, these wired teardrops where we cut individual petals, we we add wire to it. And she created this, you know, Frankenstein flower and brought in her fabric. We made a couple samples, we tweaked it, then we made a bunch of production and it's turned into like a, a thing where we, I mean, we internally refer to it as the Vera flower. We've done it for multiple big deal projects that they've had. During Pride Month, we made some in the Pride flag colors that were worn by Vera herself. Uh, we've made some for, I think it was the Met Gala two years ago that were worn by Gwen Stefani. And the flower itself is 14 inches, but for that garment, we made them even bigger. I think we had some that were 20, I don't want to exaggerate, but over 20 inches. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. 
So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Adam, where might people have seen M&S Schmalberg flowers historically end today? So historically, there were so many flower companies. And I don't want to say we got lost in the shuffle, but we were just one of many. I can give you a good answer to that over the past 20 or so years. The biggest thing that I remember seeing was when Sarah Jessica Parker started wearing a lot of flowers, including some of ours in the original Sex in the City. That was, I don't know, 20, 20 years ago, something like that. Since then, our flowers have been worn by countless celebrities. I'll just rattle off. There's Paris Hilton. I've already mentioned Sarah, Martha Stewart, LeBron James. Bono, Anne Hathaway, Beyonce, Rihanna, Lizzo, Whoopi Goldberg, Prince Harry, Meghan Markle, Candace Swainpool, Reese Witherspoon, the great Khaleesi from Game of Thrones. <laughs> I love that there's a lot of guys in this list, too, by the way. We've, we've been very lucky to have a lot of these between the Met Gala, different award ceremonies, a lot of people wearing wearing our stuff. Last year, the Met Gala, the theme was Karl Lagerfeld who, for anyone who doesn't know, was at the helm of Chanel for the longest time. And Chanel is known for camellias. And I remember thinking like three or four weeks before that, like, why, why are we getting orders? And the answer is because none of these designers plan ahead. And over that next bunch of weeks, we had a litany of rush projects. I remember one of our staff members, Lincoln, said to me, hey, I got Diddy's people, you know, Puff Daddy. They're reaching out to me because they need a few hundred black camellias. And I'm like, when do they need them? They need them tomorrow. Great. <laughs> Over that bunch of weeks, we got so many of these crazy rush orders. When it was all said and done, our flowers were worn by 17 different celebrities, ranging from one flower worn by Jenna Ortega, a bunch of flowers worn by Olivia Rodrigo, I've already mentioned Puff Daddy, and a bunch of other celebrities that uh, that are slipping my mind right now. We've worked with a lot of great designers, Oscar de la Rente, Carolina Herrera, Vera Wang, Ralph Lauren. We've done flowers for Broadway and for shows. We, we did flowers for Hamilton you know, many years ago. There is a certain costume department in Orlando, Florida, who, whose name I cannot mention, that we do a lot of flowers for. I think that's obvious enough. <laughs> we, we did a bunch of flowers for the San Francisco Opera. We've made flowers for Gilded Age, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Bridgerton, we get a lot of, one of the reasons we need to be in New York City is we get a lot of these costume departments from these small shows. We get, I think, Funny Girl, like maybe came up and bought two flowers and that was it. That's all they needed. But we want to be there for that. We, and we've done a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of great work. Yeah. And dress listeners, you too can own one or many of these flowers. There are so many options to choose from. You're just going to have to go onto Etsy and you also do flower making workshops, which might pique people's interests as well. If if there's a group that wants to come do a flower making workshop. Yes. So we love doing factory tours, as you've already experienced. So anyone who's listening to this podcast who is either in New York, coming to New York, you want to come check us out. We're very, we're very welcoming. You can, you can email, you can call us. Anybody who's interested in the flower making. So that's something we, we do it much more rarely. 
we started doing it a bunch of years ago. So you come in, you get a tour of the factory, and you get to sit down with a member of our staff. In most cases, it's Miriam, who has been with us longer than I've been alive. She's like an aunt to me. She was at my wedding. I love her. And she's incredibly talented and loves just loves doing this. And so you'll sit down with her or one of the members of our staff, and you get to make your a few flowers, and you get to take them home with you. It's a fun time. We've done... We've done them personally where people contact us and like maybe bring their family. And we've done some cool like team building things. We've had people from our maze come up. I, I wasn't always sure if I was allowed to say that, but they told me like a post about it on Instagram. So if I could do that, I can mention it in a podcast. We've had people from Google come up to our space. You know, people, they're, they're on like the programming team. And it's it's always a fun time. Well, Adam, thank you so much for taking us behind the scenes of your incredible business and into the process and into the history. Uh, And our listeners, we will, of course, link to their Etsy, the Instagram, uh, the Bernadette Banner interview, so you can see all of this in action. Uh, But thank you so much for joining us and sharing this with us, Adam. This has been really special. It's a pleasure. I love sharing the craft. And it was nice talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Adam. It was definitely a highlight of our tour to get to see how the flowers are made from start to finish. And then we also had the opportunity to purchase them. And I just want to say, Cass, that I lately have been wearing some of them in my hair. (laughs) So many people stayed to shop, but I got so overwhelmed. There are thousands of flowers in there. So many different varieties. I mean, I wanted them all. I don't even know how you picked. I still have like a shopping cart full of them trying to decide what I want. <laughs> and trust <laughs> listeners, you too can have your very own piece of MS Schmalberg history because Adam has graciously gifted our listeners a 20% off code for their Etsy store with code DRESS. So you can head to the link in our bio and have a wonderful afternoon flower browsing and shopping. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to say, I'm going to tease a little something coming summer 2024. And, you know, in addition to the tours of the Met that I've been doing, I'm also going to start doing garbage district tours. So that is in the working phases too. And, you know, Cass, I I know you join me when I say that it is now more important than ever to support businesses like Adams and George's, because in so many ways, uh, they are the last of their kind. You know, you heard both of them speak to the struggles to stay open over the years. And both of these companies, they witnessed and survived these tidal waves of change that have swept over the garment district, like skyrocketing rents, um, but also the rise of overseas production and fast fashion, which has forced many businesses like theirs to close up shop. At one point, the garment industry accounted for nearly 50% of the industrial employment in New York City, but today it's only very sadly at 4%. Yes, but that does not mean by any means that the industry is dead, of course. It still is very much alive as attested to by both Adam and George and their companies, which represent everything that we stand for on Dressed. How do we return to valuing not just our clothing, but the people who make it right? These are exemplars of those values. And we hope you enjoyed meeting these fashion history makers, dress listeners, as much as we did, and that you remember to consider their significance and impact on the clothes we wear and have worn for generations next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can email us at hello at dressedhistory.com. DressedHistory.com is, of course, our website where you can find information on our current and upcoming fashion history courses from the newly launched Dressed the School of Fashion. 
Cass's What Women Wore to the Revolution is currently in session, and registration is open for part one of my great designer series, which will launch in early April. So you can learn lots more about that and also sign up on our website at dressedhistory.com, where you can also sign up to be the very first to know about our soon-to-be-announced Fashion History Tours of Paris, which are coming your way this year in the fall. And usually we do this in the summer, but um, as many of you probably know, it's the Olympics in Paris this year in the summer. Uh, So we thought it best to scooch it back a wee bit. (laughs) And you're going to find images in a reels accompanying this week's and our other episodes on our Dressed History Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. And you can check out the hashtag dress 342 that's dressed in the numbers 342 to find the content specifically connected to today's episode and remember you can find an array of our favorite and podcast featured fashion history titles on the dressed bookshelf through bookshop.org you'll find a link to our bookshelf in our show notes as well as a link to sign up for the ad-free version of the show which is just three dollars a month as always thank you so much for your continued support more dress coming your way on tuesday Dressed the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media.